The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Well, good morning, church. I hope everyone's doing well. I want to extend a welcome to everyone here, those online, and perhaps a few of the folks that are up in the, the youth room a little cooler. But my name is Jonathan Chastain. I'm one of the pastors here at TCC, and honestly, it's a joy. It's been quite a while, but it's a joy to be with you this morning to open God's Word. And as you already know, uh, Pastor Phil's already read our text this morning from Psalm 110, and that's where we're going to be. So if you take a moment, go ahead and flip over there. Um, we, we got a lot to cover. So... As we get started, quick fun fact about Psalm 110, all right? So did you know that while Psalm 110 is not one of the more well-known psalms, not, at least not like Psalm 23 or Psalm 119, something like that, but did you know that this psalm is quoted more than any other Old Testament passage in the New Testament? It's a pretty big deal. You know, if the New Testament writers quote or allude to this psalm 25 plus times and at least 10 times directly in Hebrews. So it's a pretty important passage, yet most of us didn't know that, right? You know, why, do, why is that? Why is it such a super famous Old Testament passage that is used oftentimes in the New Testament, but we don't know a whole lot about it? It's kind of like, I guess it's like, if you're, old, if you're under 40, show of hands, does anybody know what a newspaper is? We got a few. Oh, I forgot. Some of y'all are not, yeah, okay. But most of you, how about, do you know what a newspaper is such that you use it daily to get your news and information. Probably nobody, right? Well, there was a time that we all know that that was a critical piece of how we got information, right? We took it. We got it every day. I mean, I'm, I think my grandparents still do. But nobody really gets the newspaper anymore, right? Super important way of getting information that we really, it's kind of like old hat now, right? Similarly, how about a sports analogy? Did you know that James Naismith came up with 13 original basketball rules. One of them that has stood the test of time, at least, there's some that have been tweaked, but one that has stood the test of time is traveling. You can't do it. You can't pick the ball up and run, right? You can't take multiple steps. Well, guess what? How often is it called? If you watch any NBA game, it's really not called. You can pretty much start at the three-point the three point line and glide into the lane and dunk it if you want to. It's an important rule. One of the critical uh, 13 rules that we don't use anymore. So it's kind of like that. Similarly, Psalm 110 is an incredibly rich and very deep psalm about King Jesus. And I kind of just gave a little bit of away of my thunder, but hang with me. It's a super important text, and here's the thing. I want two questions for you to hold on to this morning. Who's this, who is this song of David about, and who is he? I mean, who, who is it about, and who is he? It's a pretty important thing. Super important text. So I want you to hang with me. We're going to move pretty quick. And what I'm going to do is give you three images or depictions, these ideas. I want you to visualize with me of who he is. And it's going to help us answer a couple of questions. All right? And I'm going to pivot to one big idea, one question, and one point of application toward the end. All right? So well, let's, get, let's get started. As Phil already mentioned, we're in Psalm 110, and verse 1 says this. This is the declaration of the Lord. To my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule over your surrounding enemies. 
Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. The dew of your youth belongs to you. So, right off the bat, this critical thing. We have a little bit of a conflict. The Lord says to my Lord. Right? Well, the first word, the first Hebrew word there for Lord is Yahweh. It's Jehovah God. The second reference to the um, to Lord is the Hebrew word for Adonai, my master, my Lord. Right? So, Lord, master, we have Yahweh, and we have David quoting or citing God's words, the covenant God of Israel, that he's saying to David's master is effectively what he's saying here. David's saying, to my master, this is what he says. And what's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to take David's master and put him out of my right hand. This is a place of authority. This is a, a great position of authority where you're going to rule and reign alongside. And so this asks two questions, right? Who on earth is David talking about? Isn't he the king? Isn't he the supreme leader of Israel at this time? Why would he say the Lord says to my Lord? Why and not reference to himself, right? He's the one that's in charge. So who is his master? Who is that? Secondly, who on earth could this be that the covenant God of Israel would refer to this person like this? A little bit of a trick question. Who on earth? But who is God referring to here? Who is the covenant God making reference to? Well, I mentioned this is super important text. And oftentimes quoted in the New Testament. But even Jesus uses this reference to claim his deity. So we're going to flip over, if you will. You can flip over to Matthew 22. Hold your place there in Matthew 22. This is coming on the heels of Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Palm branches, shouting Hosanna. And then he's starting to get his opponents. They don't like it, so they start questioning him, right? So they start trying to trap him. They want to get a little bit of a sound bite that he messed up, which is not unlike our political climate right now, right? It's what we try to do. We want to say, oh, what did he mess up and say? What did this person do, right? This is exactly what they're trying to do. This is an old hat tactic. This is exactly what they're trying to do to Jesus. So they're asking him, well, who do we pay taxes to, Jesus? If we're supposed to be loyal to the Messiah, what do we do? And, and what about the resurrection? I mean, what's this thing? And how about the greatest commandment, teacher? Well, guess what? They're hoping to mess him up, and what does Jesus do? He quotes Scripture, and he, he answers perfectly. It's what he does. He, he can't be tricked. He can't be messed up. And so what does he do at this moment in Matthew 22, verse 41? He flips the script, and he asks them a very pointed question. And he uses Scripture, of course. Pick up in verse 41. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, the son of David, they replied. He said to them, Well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? How about this reaction? Verse 46. No one could say a word or reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Drop mic, right? He silences his opponents, shuts them down. With what appears to be a very simple question, he blows it all up. You see, the Jews have this idea of who the Messiah is going to be. It's going to be this rule, uh, ruling king, this military leader. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to come in and save them from this Roman oppression. They have this idea of what he's going to be. 
And to be fair, isn't that what we've seen in the Scripture for Israel? I mean, to be fair, we've seen judges and kings and leaders come along and, and save them, right? And don't we know that this Messiah is going to come from the line of David? So they're not way off here. They're not completely wrong that it's going to come from David, a David's son, right? But it's more than that. You see, the Lord declares that, that the son is higher than. It's David's master, and it would be a descendant of David. 2 Samuel 7 tells us, The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Skip down to verse 16 of that same passage. It says, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. So they're not way off base, but yet there's more to it. Jesus refutes their idea of what this ideal Messiah is going to be. You know, he just came riding in on a donkey, right? Not some great steed, some magnificent horse, what a, a ruling, a conquering military leader might do. He comes in on a donkey. And you got to think about his opponents here. they got to be thinking, this guy? Really? I mean, we look at our history and we see these great leaders. This, this guy? So in fairness, right? Let's be fair and not use biblical snobbery. Let's let... The idea here, this guy is exactly right. This guy. Yeah, think about it. Jesus is pointing out a couple things. If the Messiah, the Lord that David is talking about, had truly been one of David's descendants, even if David could look down the line and see, get a picture of who's to come, wouldn't he call him his son? Would he say, would he call him Lord? I mean, he would never call him Lord, right? David would never say the Lord says to my Lord. He would say the Lord says to my son. But we know through this text of this, the Holy Spirit working in David that the Lord says to my Lord, this is David's master. This is his master. He wouldn't refer to him as master unless he truly was. And if that's true, Jesus is pointing out, then he can't just, this Messiah can't just be a human being, a simple political or military leader. Jesus asked, I mean, how can this even be? The Messiah has got, got to be more than that. And their silence says it all. They never asked him any more questions. They weren't going to challenge him anymore. He was way too beyond them. So here's the thing. You know, they really wanted this Messiah to get caught up in the political atmosphere, the military rule, not unlike our time today. Lots of folks put their hope in our military or in our political system to save and to help restore, right? But that's not what's happening here, and that's not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to get caught up in the political issues. He came for more eternal issues. He came to defeat sin and death itself. In other words, you got, Dave, you got uh, Jesus saying, I'm not just David's son here. I'm David's Lord. He's fully God and fully man. I can't explain how that is other than it's a tension between the two, that God is fully man and fully God. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is not just a human political leader or military leader to conquer enemies, but rather he's the son of David and the son of God that has come to conquer sin and death. This is who he is. Make no mistake from the beginning and very distinctly from other messianic psalms. This one's very clear. We see that this psalm is not just talking about a human king. He's talking about a divine king. 
a holy king that has come to sit at the right hand of God the Father to share in his rule and reign. It's exactly what he's doing. It's exactly what he's doing. And notice the continuation of that idea as you transition to verse 2 and 3. He's seated at God's right hand. He extends his scepter. He's going to rule and reign alongside this master, this Lord. He's positioned in a place of honor. He's seated at the right hand of God who is engaged, who is engaged alongside. This is a big deal. It's a big claim, a bold claim that Jesus is making. And yet it's exactly who he is. So, first thing we have, we have a picture of a king. Hold on to that. It's going to be important later. So thinking back to our two questions, who is this song of David about and who is he? Well, for, for once, he's, he's a king, a holy divine king. It's who he is. Pick up in verse 4. We find another profound statement from David under the, by the Spirit. It says, The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Now, it's a little odd, and unless you are digging into the Scriptures, this might, you know, or at least look at your cross-references. Who is Melchizedek? I mean, why are we referring, why is the, why is the covenant God of Israel, you know, who's claiming this master to come to his right hand and referring him as Melchizedek? I mean, why make a reference to a barely there figure in the Scriptures? If you're familiar with Genesis, Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, we see uh, Melchizedek comes on the scene, and he disappears from the scene. No beginning, no end. He shows up, and he goes away very quickly, right? Well, we see this reference in Psalm 110. We also see it in Hebrews 7. And that's where we're going to spend a good bit of time here in a moment. But in Hebrews 7, starting in verse 1, we get a little more background. It's a little bit how Genesis 14 ties to Hebrews 7. I'd encourage you to follow along. It's a good spot. Verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high. Now, king of Salem, king of righteousness, priest of most high God. He's this king of, this priest of peace. He met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name, again, means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Skip down to verse 15. And this becomes clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, who did not become a priest based on a legal regulation about physical descent, but based on the power of an indestructible life. Start thinking, who are we thinking of here? Verse 17, for it has been testified, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Here's Psalm 110. So the previous command is annulled because it's weak and unprofitable, for the law perfected nothing, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. None of this happened without an oath, for others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not take it back, will not change his mind, excuse me. You are a priest forever. Again, Psalm 110, verse 22. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. <clears throat> now, many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who came to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. So I'm going to take a moment, and we're going to compare the two, but 
So children this morning, if you got your packet, there's a, there's a good little puzzle to put together. There's a, there's a picture to color about being about our, our high priest and Jesus. But Melchizedek, you see, is a type of Christ. And that's why we have the, the reference here to Genesis 14. He also has no beginning, no end. You see, Melchizedek and Jesus look alike. They're both king and priest. Yet as Hebrews 1.3 tells us, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact impression, exact expression of his nature. Jesus is so much better, right? They're both alike in that there's no beginning of days, no end of life. Yet as Colossians 1.16 through 17 tells us, Jesus created everything and he holds everything together. Jesus is better. He's way better. That's what we're getting at. Jesus is better. See, Melchizedek was a priest that represented the people to God. And, you know, he, he offered sacrifices daily. It's what priests did. The high priest would make sacrifices daily. Well, Jesus offered himself once and for all, for all sins. It's finished. This is Jesus, and he's better, way better. Melchizedek served outside the bounds of a covenant by the law. Jesus established and became the guarantee of a better covenant. He's so much better. See the reference, see the tie, they're king and priest. This one to come after the order of Melchizedek to reign and be a permanent priest forever. This is our Jesus. You see, Melchizedek is an expression or this type of Christ, and yet Jesus is so much better. So again, we have this image of a king. We also have now an image of a priest, this king priest. That's how we have this morning. And our third and final image this morning is, is found in the last three verses is, Picking up in Psalm 110, verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. How about that conclusion? I mean, we have this beautiful, these beautiful references of, a, of this benevolent king this king jesus and then we have this priest jesus and then we have this conqueror right who comes in who's going to crush kings he's going to heap up corpses stacking them up he's going to heap them up he's going to crush leaders over the entire world you know warren wearsby comments and says even if you allow for poetic license it's not a pretty picture right i mean even if you take this and maybe it's just a an analogy or a reference or some kind of theme, it's really not a pretty picture. You see, I don't have to elaborate a whole lot here, I don't think, because it's kind of kind of self-explanatory. But you see, a day of God's judgment is coming. His wrath is coming. He will overcome his enemies. He will conquer. He has conquered. He's victorious. He's going to rule and reign. He's going to overcome and destroy Satan and his followers and anyone who takes up arms against him. That's what he's going to do. It's who he is. He's a conqueror. He's a king, priest, and he's a conqueror. So finally, in thinking, who, who is this song of David about? Who is he? Well, a little bit of a spoiler alert that I kind of did early on, but it's King Jesus. This is Jesus. This is the answer to both questions. This is who the son, excuse me, the song of David is about, and this is who he is. He is king, priest, and conqueror. He is the one. It's Jesus. He's, he's a perfect representation of all three of these images. Perfectly. Perfectly. And I think this is why our New Testament authors recognize this is an important text. This is not only claiming who the Messiah is. This is, 
This is who it's going to be, and this is what he represents. This is who he is. See, Jesus is king. He's seated on the throne of God at his right hand, ruling and reigning with him. You know, our youth went on beach camp this week, and they were, able, they were asked to memorize Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And this is one of the pictures that they pick up on. It says that if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is. He's seated at the right hand of God. What a reminder. This is our King Jesus who we can rest in. It's King Jesus. He's also a priest who offered himself once and for all for all of sins. And he ever lives to intercede on our behalf. That's what he's doing for us. For those who believe, he's, he's our priest who makes intercession. That's what the priest would do. And then Jesus is a conqueror who has won the victory. He's going to judge and overcome his enemies. He wins. We win because of Jesus and his finished work. So answering our two questions, here's, here's my one big idea, my one question, and my one application. My one big idea is this. The pictures we had this morning, king, priest, conqueror. Here's the thing. Jesus is not one or the other, right? I know oftentimes we're tempted to, to put labels or to, to defer our thoughts or maybe to give God this picture of who we think he is. But he's not just a king. He's not just a priest. And he's not just a conqueror. He's equally all of those, all three of them, perfectly. Perfectly. But just like the Jewish people got their idea messed up, we're, aren't we tempted to do the same? See, I, I want to lean into this a little bit because here's the thing I know I catch myself doing, and I suspect some of you do as well. If you're thinking of Jesus as more king than priest, or maybe more priest than king, or even more conqueror than either or both, then I think we've, we've kind of inserted a little bit of distortion into who he is and what he's come to do. Because he's all of those things. He's not more than one or the other. He's completely all those things equally. Now, I can't explain that other than it's, it's a God thing. But that's who he is, and that's what he came to do. We can't put him in the box that we might have for him. See, he can't we can't make him conform to what we want him to be. Isn't that one of the temptations we have? Isn't that what we find ourselves doing oftentimes, that we try to make uh, and fashion and mold Jesus to be the kind of king we want him to be or the priest we want him to be or the conqueror? We want to have that power source for those times of trouble, but when I'm, not, when I'm good, I don't need him? Well, here's the deal. He's not coming. He didn't come to fulfill our hopes and give us an ideal life. I'm reminded of that. I went to a funeral yesterday, and I was reminded of the fact that this lady, godly saint of the Lord, endured and took bends and curves and turns with her life that the Lord put in front of her. She had no control over her, but she, all she could proclaim was her her theme of life was God is faithful because he is. No matter which way she went, no matter which way it, it came on her that life happened, it wasn't her ideal course, but God is faithful. And God has a perfect plan. So God came to do battle with bigger things than our ideal life and you know our ideals for what we want life to be. He came to do battle with eternal things, sin, death. To overcome and defeat those things and give us the victory in him. And just a reminder, because of that and because of who he is, he's in charge. And it's kind of a big deal. He's in charge and he's the Lord and that makes him our master. And we're to follow him, not the other way around. But the good news is, that's really good news. That we're not the leader. Because, gosh, left to our own devices, I'm a wreck. We're a wreck. 
We need to follow after the one true God, and that's what God has offered. See, in every way, Jesus is this benevolent, just, powerful king. He's also compassionate, merciful, sacrificial, and an atoning priest. But he's also a righteous, unstoppable, victorious conqueror. He's all those things. You remember back in, back in Deuteronomy 33 and 34, you got Moses' interaction with God, and he wants to see God. Show me your glory. He's like, man, you can't handle my glory. It'll kill you. Not. So what do, they, what do they find out? That he, he puts him in the cleft of the rock, and he passes by and lets him see his backside, see his glory. But what, what, does, he, what does Moses hear? Verse 6 and 7 of Deuteronomy 34 says, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished. Anybody else pick up on that apparent contradiction? Anybody? You, you see what's happening here? How can, how can a compassionate and forgiving God, how can he be that and yet not let sin go unpunished? Doesn't that feel like a contradiction? Well, it would be except for it's God, and he enter, enter in Jesus, the cross and the resurrection, right? Every sin must be punished. Must be. Because, why? Because God is so good. He has to punish all sin. But here's the thing. He's willing and able and has, has forgiven every sin on the cross. Why? Because he's so good. You know? He's so good that he can't let sin go unpunished, but he's so good that he forgives every sin by, by the cross in Jesus. He's so good. He perfectly combines qualities that nobody else can. I, again, I can't explain the tension other than to say that's what it is and that it's God. It's King Jesus that he, he can combine these things, and unless we see him as all three, king, priest, and conqueror, we won't understand who he truly is. Namely, we won't know his person and his work. You see, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us in verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He is the absolute power. He's undaunted boldness. I mean, you look at his interaction with his opponents. He didn't back down. Yet he was meek and mild. How does he combine those qualities perfectly? I don't know, but it's what he does because it's who he is. He's compassionate and merciful. So my one big idea, again, we will never see the truth and beauty of who Christ is until we see him as all of those things. King, priest, conqueror. In the person and work of Christ, we'll miss him instead. If you try to insert him as more than one or the other, you're going to miss him. It's just what the Jews did. They saw this Messiah as a ruling king. They never saw him as a compassionate, merciful priest. And they certainly did see him as the conqueror, but not, not the meek and mild, riding on a donkey king that he was. He was for the people. Do you notice that you sit on a horse, you're high up, and on a donkey, who, by the way, can, carry more, can bear more load than a horse? Doesn't he carry our burdens pretty well? But he comes riding in on a donkey to be with the people. That's who he is. That's, the priestly side. He came to be representative of the people. So keep in mind, he's all three. And as Walker and the band come up I'm, and begin playing, I want to ask you all to go ahead and come up. My one big question to, to close out 
Who do you view and understand Christ to be? I'll, I'll say it again. Who do you, who do I view and understand Christ to be? Again, if it's anything, anything other than king, priest, and conqueror, you may have a distorted view of who he really is. Truthfully, unless you understand the gospel and what Jesus came to do, you won't see all the goodness of God. John Stott says that the essence of sin is you putting yourself where only God deserves to be in charge of your life. The essence of salvation is God putting himself where we deserve to be, which was on the cross. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of Jesus and what he's come to do. On the cross, uh, all of our sins are punished. All of them. God, God could, he has to punish them, and he did so in Jesus. Yet if you believe and trust in Jesus, that means God put all those sins on him, and he took care of it. And you're declared righteous as if all your sins are gone. And they are. That's the good news. You see, who is this psalm about? Who is he? This is about King Jesus. And this is who he is. He's our king, our priest, our conqueror. He is our Lord and Savior. He's our master whom we're to follow. This is who he is perfectly. Finally, my one big application. Since we're tempted to insert this distortion that we talked about in our view of Christ Jesus, we got to remind ourselves daily of who he is and what he came to do. we got to share to ourselves oftentimes this is the person work of Jesus. And this is who I'm resting in. And then, for all of us here today, and on TV and around, this is what we got to do. As, as Josh alluded to a minute ago with, with Lebanon, we got to go. And we got to share. We got to go and share. Because think about it. If we know that hell is real, and it is, and if we know that hell is eternal separation from this king, this priest and conqueror in Jesus, if we know that, and it is, if that's true, that they're going to be separated from this benevolent, compassionate king, this sacrificial priest and this powerful conqueror, then we've got to go share the good news. We've got to go tell people about him and who he is. It's what he's called us to do. So I'm going to pray for us. And Walker, you come lead us. God, thankful that you are mighty and good, that you are more than we can ever think or imagine. You are the gracious and kind priest that is sacrificing, that has sacrificed, made the sacrifice on our behalf. God, you are a benevolent king that has our best interest in mind, and you are a conqueror that we have victory in you. Blessed be your name today, Lord, and as we go out today, may we honor you in what we think, say, and do, and may we tell others about who you are and what you came to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.